1: Hey, BTB Buddies, I'm going to give a longer intro than usual for Matt Alano Martin. Two reasons. One, his special Tango in Philly, which is free to watch on YouTube, is a must-watch for any aspiring comedian. Not just because it's funny, but because it's a great way to learn how the late show on a Friday goes. You see, Matt was taping the special for Helium Comedy Clubs, and everybody in the audience knew that this was the case. It's a special. The problem is that a very drunk woman in the front row kept interrupting him. Then a drunk guy in the front row started to try to be part of the show. And finally a drunk guy in the back yelled out during Matt's closer, which is about him reconciling with his dad before he died from ALS. Matt's dad, not Matt. Matt handled this with grace and humor, which made a great set, but not what you'd expect from a comedy special. Then he had the balls to put it out with all the interruptions. I rewatched it before writing this, and I think this video should be shown to all comedians who are about to get that host or feature spot, because this will happen to you, guaranteed. If you're prepared like Matt was, though, through 10 years of experience, you'll be able to handle it much better. Give this one a watch. Reason number two, Matt has a new podcast he's doing with Dwight Simmons, who was a guest right here on Behind the Bits in episode 46. It's called Matt and Dwight Just Might. And it's all about being a working full-time comedian based in the Midwest. One of the things I always tell folks is I started behind the bits because I couldn't find any podcasts that really broke down what it takes to be a comedian. Well, Matt and Dwight Just Might is a podcast I was looking for. I drove six hours today to Ashland, Alabama. One star, do not recommend. But I did get to binge the first five episodes of Matt and Dwight Just Might. Here's the deal. I get to talk philosophically about stand-up with my guests, but I don't get to talk as much comedy 101 or even 201 as i like because I'm feeling my way through an interview with somebody I don't know. Matt and Dwight know each other, and they get right into the nuts and bolts of stand-up. They went into how to write and email a booker to ask to be scheduled on a show, and how to tape a set in the first couple episodes. They also talk about stuff that went well and stuff that didn't go so well for them in the previous week. Because as a comedian, sometimes you have a good night and sometimes you have a bad night. Oh, another cool thing is the stuff they talk about, is questions posed by their podcast listeners. Maybe I should do that. Anyway, please give Matt's special a watch and subscribe to Matt and Dwight Just Might, and you'll learn some stuff, okay? Thanks to Jason Staples for the hookup on this one. It's a really good one. Matt Alano Martin hails from Bloomington, Indiana, and has performed all over the world. He's a co-founder of the Limestone Comedy Festival held in Bloomington, and his special Tango in Philly came out just this week. Let's bring him out right now. It is Matt Alano-Martin.
0: Hi, Matt. Hello. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I like the ad read because I also sometimes have a trouble falling back to sleep. So, All right. <laughs> yes. It's like this is already paying off for me. <laughs> All right, <laughs> like, this great. Yeah, just, already... just
1: use a code BEHIND20 so they keep me on for more than two weeks. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Will do. The problem with podcast advertising is they are not very patient. They expect everything to happen right away. And on little independent podcasts like this, it takes a while. And, yeah. and, you know, it takes weeks, months, instead of just... They always bring you on for a trial run of two weeks. And, yeah, that but that's okay. You know, yeah, whatever. I did Manscaped a while back. And they sent me a box that weighed like 20 pounds, like everything they sell. So they've got the ball shaver. They've got the nose hair trimmer. They've got all these products that I haven't even opened because one of them's called a ball toner. And I just can't imagine needing to tone my balls. And I've actually tried to do a joke about that, but you know, you, you know how that goes. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Yeah, I feel like that should be a special Patreon-only episode. Yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> but I'm stoked to have you on the show. You know, we know people in kind because you just started a podcast with Dwight Simmons, and he was a guest probably, I don't know, two years ago or so, and loved Dwight, saw him here in Huntsville about a
0: year ago, and uh, yeah, it's it's he's one of my favorites. Yeah, Dwight's an amazing person. And I, one of my best friends in comedy. And I mean, we've just known each other forever and we would do these tours together. And it just seemed like a natural fit for sure. I do want to also give a shout out to Jason Staples. I love Jason so much. And I see he's in the chat, I think. Oh, is he cool? In the software. Yeah. But I also, a big fan of Jason. And it's been a while since I've seen him. So hopefully I'll get to see him again soon.
1: Yeah. Jason is one of the first comedians that I started talking to when I started doing open mics up in South Bend, and him and Mike Hullinger and I are really into horror movies, and we got together and talked about horror movies and just had a good time. We had a podcast called Weird Awesome, and I think I went on and talked about one of the Carpenter films. I had Donald Pleasance in it, but it wasn't Halloween. Oh. That
0: cat, it's not Cat People, is it? That has Donald no. Pleasance in
1: it? Jason's going to know it. It's one of my favorite movies, and I can't think of it. Anyway, uh, but yeah, yeah, he's a cool guy, and fortunate we've kept in touch even after moving. But let's talk about you, Matt. Ah. I, so, so the first <laughs> thing I watched was a special, and I have mm. to say some stuff happened in that special that I don't think you were expecting. <laughs> you, I'm sure... It- The audience knew that you were taping a special. They normally announce that ahead of time, but there was a couple of folks drinking a little bit too much.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. And it really, yeah, it was crazy. So the way that they shot these specials, I was one of many people who got a special through Helium Comedy Studios. They Uh. they basically shot them for several weeks in a row. And they're all shot at the Philadelphia Helium, the home club, the original club for the Mm. Helium Chain. And I think their original idea was that they wanted to just kind of capture a club feel and uh, boy, did they capture it on mine. And so they weren't really treating it like a special so much as it's a live show and we're going to tape it. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting because, you know, like uh, my buddy Ramin Masafani taped the same weekend as me and I was in the room during his taping. And then there was a different drunk woman in the back of the room who yelled out during one of his bits. And so to their credit, I will say we were like the second group that they had done uh-huh. and I, By the second night of our tapings, they corrected everything. Like they were more, they were screening more who was getting seated up front. They were like, they were treating it more like, oh, we have all these cameras and we're spending all this money on this, you know, they were just doing it. Like it's a Friday late show, you know, and it certainly was a Friday late show that we captured with mine.
1: Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And you know what? I thought it was pretty cool the way it worked out, you know, I mean, the young lady up front was probably even drunker than she was portrayed because there was a couple times because I got to the point where I was just watching and there was a little bit more slumping every time the camera got to her so she must have started out in the bag and just really fed it more as she was sitting
0: there yeah it's one of these things where I mean and I do like legitimately ask her if she's okay yeah. at one point because she's <laughs> so drunk. And yeah. and it's one of these things where, yeah, what's crazy is like that, that was 10 minutes into the show. Like there was an MC that did like 10 minutes and then I came out and what you see is like, basically we talked about, that. we did a first edit of it. Jimmy Chairman, the producer and director of these specials is really great. He sent a first draft and they, he and his editor had tried to edit around this drunk woman and the interruption mm-hmm. He's constantly talking through the whole show and she's like, but it really... It didn't work because the vibe was off in the room still. You could still see like shots of other people in the audience pissed off and you didn't know why, because we had taken out the fact that this woman was just being irritating. And so they did a second edit and they, it really just makes the narrative very clear what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just brilliant the way they did it. And I'm not trying to, this has nothing to do with my jokes and what I did on stage, just their editing and the way they framed the narrative Yeah. with this, this edit that got released on Saturday. I was just blown away that they made it crystal clear what's going on. We could have, like, made it much worse. There is actually footage of her that's even worse than that uh-huh. that we felt was, like, maybe a little too embarrassing to include in it. Yeah. And so we tried to walk the line of not, you know, the same way that I handled her. I didn't try to dunk on her. I didn't call her any names, hmm. you know. But I was also like, well, this is kind of a big deal. This is a recording of a special. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I came here <laughs> with some jokes to do, and I can't even get, Like there's, I didn't realize this until the other day, but there's, there's two jokes that I start and then I just don't finish them because I have to deal with her. Yeah. And those jokes are just not in the special now. (laughs) (laughs) Do they have to, do they
1: have to sign any sort of a waiver or anything when you do something like the, you know, they're going to be part
0: of the special? I don't think they actually had everyone sign, but there's, there was signage everywhere and it was in the ticket buying information. Okay. And so they were. it was explicitly clear that we were taping a special. I mean, there's literally a cameraman on stage with us. Yeah. Like the, the Philly helium stage is not very deep, but it's kind of wide. Yeah. There was a, just a camera guy up there all the time for all the taping. So it was very clear what was going on. And also the MC talked about the taping. But yeah, she showed up so in the bag. And she wasn't <laughs> even the other the only one. There's like another guy that kind of starts piping up later on. In the front row. Yeah. Um, Matt? But yeah. The other Matt? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, the other Matt, yes. But we just decided to just make it more less of a comedy special, more of a document of like, this is the Friday Late show. Yeah. This is what happens. This is how I handled it. I'm sure there's people that could have handled it better than I did, but I feel like I did okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did great. And I, what I loved was the foreshadowing because, you know, they, sh- they have you talking a little bit up front and then they um, do the announcement of no talking or whatever during the show and then they pan on that girl
0: and she's like is this a joke yeah that's what she legitimately said to a stranger sitting next to her yeah that's the other thing is that couple that's sitting to her left they're the ones who and when we try to edit around that like it looked like they hated the show because they were getting so irritated with her right yeah because she keeps talking to them yeah you know and so yeah it's definitely it's different and I, i don't know i've gotten some very nice notes and people like I have some friends that, you know, are academics and, and scholarly type writers who have sent me messages like, it's so fascinating. It's all about the 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 performer and audience dynamic and it's yeah. just like this. And I was like, Well, cool. I mean, hopefully you also thought it was funny. Yeah. Also- <laughs> oh I'm glad you thought it was compelling, but also hopefully you laughed. You know. Yeah,
1: you know, it was de- it was definitely funny. And, you know, you made reference to it, right? It was a little bit past the middle, I think. This isn't the show I was expecting, but we're rolling with it. And I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we kind of realized at the moment that we captured something, but it was also tricky in how we were going to present it without really being, you know, because I'm not a mean person. And I one of the main things that I talked about with them is like, I know that a clip that says something like, you know, comedian destroys drunk. You know woman or drunk b-word or whatever would get a million hits on social media it's like we're not doing that Uh we're not like we can have clips of me doing the crowd work and handling her but we're not going to frame it like that right because it doesn't like fit who i am as a person and i just don't think that stuff is cool yeah yeah (laughs) although i understand the way the internet works it would probably get a lot more views if we had done that but right right and
1: you know what i've been that person so i know what it's like on the other side and Golly, it'd be rough
0: if I if that was uh, filmed when I was acting like that. I mean, I'm nine years sober, and so there definitely was a sort of is this the ghost of my own past coming back? to, yeah. to, to haunt me. <laughs> uh, you know, you said
1: something at the front end of the of the special that really stuck with me because it's something I talk to with a lot of comedians who have been doing it double-digit years and you said that you are getting closer to your truth as a comedian. How do you define getting closer to
0: your truth? It's hard to put into words. just more of a feeling and it's more things coming in. Just they feel more natural. They feel more pure. I mean, you still put in the work and you have to rewrite and things like that. It's not like everything that comes out is just perfectly done and ready to go. I think it's just... Keying in more and more on what my sensibilities as a comedian is, what I think is funny, how I can present that. Because you know, we all, for a long time, we will write. Well, this joke is not really my style, but it's a great joke. I figured out how to write a joke that maybe is very dark, or you know, is like more of like a dirty one-liner type joke or whatever. You mm-hmm. know. And so I feel like I'm moving through all of that and, and it's still incorporating some of that stuff into the set. You know, I'm, I'm now working on hour four, and. It's, I, it's a hard thing to describe. I think it's just getting closer to my emotional truth. Like the way that I'm presenting my humor, it's less about, oh, isn't this clever wordplay, you know, oh, I did this turnaround. I know how to like manipulate an audience's expectations. So then I can get a big laugh on the punchline. It's like, no, this is like either stuff that's more personal or even if it's more superficial, there's, there is an emotional intelligence to it that I think is becoming more and more wide and more not singular to me because that makes it sound like i'm you know there's lots of comics who do this but just my personal emotional intelligence the way that i think about things i think it's getting that stuff's coming up more to the surface and the material without being explicit because i don't i don't want to make it sound super high-ended i mean one of my new jokes is a blowjob joke right but at the end of the day, what it's really about is about meal, you know, and so that's like the subtext to jokes are getting more and more true to like the things that I want to talk about. I think, I think that's what I'm going for. Who knows? I don't know. Right, right. It changes every day, man. <laughs> and, you know, I listened to a couple of your
1: previous albums and you don't, it doesn't feel like you have like become a completely different comedian, but I do, even from the special, the jokes that you got to say, I did feel like it was more, not because the jokes on the albums are personal too, but it's felt like it was, for lack of a better word, heartfelt. It felt a little bit more like you were more emotionally invested in the words you were saying.
0: Yeah, I think it, that's a performance aspect, honestly, which is something that I've been able to key into the last couple of years is I'm really proud of my second record, Blood, Blood Mouth. It's a, I like a lot of the jokes on there. I think they still hold up, but they still are presented as jokes. Like here is now this joke. Here is now this joke. And I think what I started to get into with Midnight Nachos, which just overlaps the same material as the special Tango and Philly, but that's the third record that came out in July is it's more of a conversation, more of like, yes, there are jokes in there, but it's less like, here is a joke. Here is the setup. Here is the punchline. It's more of a continual conversation. And then there's punchlines in there and funny parts. And that to me is what's the most interesting part of stand up and why I like it so much is I like the conversational aspect with an audience, which seems like a weird thing to say when I had to spend a bunch of time shutting down a, and a, a drunk lady in my special. But I mean, I don't mean like an actual literal conversation. I mean, I mean like an inner, like a, an exchange of energy and like, Getting everybody on that same wavelength and vibe, yeah, that's what I'm shooting for and what I'm going for now, as opposed to here's a well-written joke and here's the punchline and hopefully you laugh at it. It's more about now, like, do you get on my wavelength, basically, is what I'm shooting for. And, you know,
1: I'm actually, I'm going through the same thing myself and it's kind of a, it's more, and I hate talking about myself, but it's more of a extreme change because I when I started out, and I didn't start until I was 52, uh, but when I started out, I did what I thought people would want to hear out of me, which is clean and just really vanilla. And that's not the type of person I am. And I feel like I went from writing what I think is funny to writing what I think and making it funny.
0: That's the key right there. You just nailed it, is this idea of Yeah, stop writing what you think people want to hear. Particularly, I mean, it's a dangerous thing to when you write down to a certain room, whether that be like, you know, a hillbilly rural room or an insider hipster room. Writing jokes to a specific room, it's not great. I I, I know a joke is great when it works most of the time, most of the places. And I play everything from like redneck BFW Hall type shows and little towny bars to, you know, opening for super alty people, you know, like Marie Bamford and people like that. And so, when that joke works in all those places, like, oh, this joke is good, or this story is good, it is interesting. I'm wondering because I didn't start till I was 35, but when you started at 52, did you think that people, you thought that you had to work clean because of be your age? Partially age, <clears throat> partially the way I
1: look. You know, I look like a high school gym teacher. You know, I, I had hair at the time when yeah. I first started, but yeah, how yeah, was-
0: many will do that to you? it Will make you lose your hair? Yes, <laughs> They could all fall out.
1: Yeah, it was a COVID thing. I had a bald spot anyway, and I couldn't get my hair cut. It looked like a comb over. So I just went to the bathroom and it was gone. Yes. <laughs> I'm very impulsive like that. So,
0: but you, so you thought that you seemed, you appeared to be clean cut, and so you felt like you had to work clean.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I was I was reading all the comedy books and listening to all the podcasts and, you know. All of them say you got to work clean, you got to stay away from material that could offend people, all that kind of stuff. And when it comes right down to it, I'm an angry boomer. You know, I'm mad at my generation. I'm mad at how we have ruined the country for our children and our grandchildren, and we can't and we won't even answer for it. You know, I've got more, I've got a lot more anger behind me, and that's what I'm writing now. Now I yeah. am bombing the fuck out of open mics by making the switch because it's like starting over.
0: Yeah, yeah, because you're ra- if you're radically changing your style, yeah, it is like a big changeover. But you know, like Prior did that, Carlin did that. There yeah. are a lot of the greats who were pretty successful doing one thing, and then they just chucked it all and decided to reinvent themselves as far as what they talked about on stage. Right. So yeah, I think that's I think that's great, and I think that's an interesting angle too of like. The angry boomer, but you're not dunking on young people. You're like, no, our generation is the one who messed everything up. You're taking this millennial (laughs) viewpoint, you know. Yeah. So yeah. It's so did you say that you started comedy in COVID or just the haircut was in COVID? The haircut was COVID. 52 uh 2017,
1: 2018.
0: Yeah. So I started
1: in no, I've been doing it for six years. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Cause I'm 50, you, I'm 58 now. So yeah, yeah, six years ago.
0: You look good for 58. I don't know if it's a filter that you're using or something. Yeah. Chat. <laughs> it's no filter. I do want to just also let anybody who is watching the video, every time that you see me go out of frame, I am not doing cocaine. I am <laughs> blowing my nose. I'm having a crazy allergy attack. And it started right before we started yeah. recording. But I just realized <laughs> it just, I'm going just out of frame and bending over enough that it looks like that might be what I'm doing. Yeah. You know?
1: Now, one of the things that you're nine years sober and you've been performing comedy for
0: around 14, 15, right? Yeah, I'm coming up on 14 years in March. Okay. 14 years in March, yeah. So first off,
1: as far as getting sober, did the addiction start before you started doing comedy and just run into it? Or was that something that happened while you were doing comedy?
0: No, I had a problem before I ever started doing comedy. And then, you know, I think comedy enables a lot of substance abuse issues, you know, because there is a very big social aspect to comedy, particularly when you start hanging out with other comics, you're drinking, you can, it's a job, it's a, once you even work up your way where you're doing it as a job and you're getting paid, you can drink at your job. And then a lot of times it's almost encouraged, you know, Mm -hmm. there are those crowds that love to send a shot up to the stage. So the, you know, like, let's get the clown drunk, you know, that kind of stuff. And so my substance abuse issues were already a problem before I started doing comedy. It just kind of hit ahead, let's see, nine years, so for what, five years into comedy or so, where I was on the road and I was, I just, I was miserable. Miserable. Mm. So I was just drinking out of control in the hotel room and then, you know, barely getting it together to perform and then just re- rinse and repeat, right? Mm. It's like how I was doing it. So I finally just realized that I needed to, I really what did it, what it was is like, I need to figure out why am I out here doing this? Why am I away from my wife? Why am I out here on the road doing these shows? If it's not to be as good as I can possibly be at this thing. And so basically I just rewired my brain and my priorities. And so it stopped being about being a tortured, you know, art misunderstood artist. Yeah, You know, only the bottle understands me, you know, kind of <laughs> bullshit narrative that you buy into on some level as a drunk. And then it just really became more about, no, if I want to do this for real, then I need to get this out of my life for a lot of reasons, for mm-hmm. comedy-related reasons. Was And it's also just to become a better comic. Still be here, because I almost died a couple times, too. That was a big, yeah. big part of it. There. Getting
1: clean while you're still do- performing comedy, because, I mean, you at least were a road dog. I mean, 150 dates a year is a road dog. And being on the road and being by the booze and everything else, you can get your hands on very easily. At the clubs, did you have any kind of a support system that helped you stay on the right track? Or was it just something you decided internally, and you just went with
0: it? No, I did have a support system. I had two people who acted basically as de facto sobriety coaches. Okay. The main one was a friend of mine that I had known since they were in college. I live in a college town. of in Bloomington, Indiana. They would come to college here. They're a few years younger than me, but they dated one of my friends, mm-hmm. and I've known them ever since then but they were a big proponent of AA. They were really into the program and they were primarily my main one. And then the second one, and they also worked in the comedy industry. They didn't work as a comic, but they worked for a management agency in New York and they were a lifesaver. The other one was a comic who is also sober and had been sober for a couple of years before me. And so basically if I needed to reach out and call, you know, they were there for me and the main person who wasn't a comic, but worked in comedy industry and was very into the AA program, it became a running bit where if I called them, you know, like after on a weekend, like after 10 or whatever, Mm -hmm. they would answer their phone and go, so what comedy festival are you at? Yeah. (laughs) Because that was particularly a trigger for me as I was getting into these festivals. And then I had like all this like imposter syndrome, Uh you know, and also everybody's party, everybody parties their ass off at festivals, comedians do. And so it was very tricky, and particularly if I had to do, like, more than just a weekly check-in, if I did a call for extra backup and tell us how they would answer the phone.
1: <laughs> That's great. And congratulations on being able to do that because, you know, a lot of folks can't. It's funny, some of, the, some of my favorites, you know, had the same realization as you, like Letterman. He, you know, he finally said, okay, I saw what it did to my dad, so I'm just going to stop. Tom Dreesen, who's one of my all-time favorites, same thing. You know, he saw that it was holding him back. And once you, it's funny, you can bottom out so many times, almost die. But when you've got something that you really want, and then you see something that's holding you back, one obsession trumps the other one, and you can actually succeed. And that's
0: great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, just to take it a step farther, and this is not nearly the same thing, but I recently quit caffeine because it was affecting how I was performing on stage. I would get too jittery ah. and I would talk way too fast. And I was getting to even the point where I was stuttering sometimes on stage because I just had so much caffeine in my system. And so I got COVID back in July and was basically laid up in my bed for a week just on ibuprofen anyway. And so I'd kind of had made it through the caffeine withdrawal migra- migraines yeah. that happened like the first week or so. And so I just ran with it. And so I haven't had caffeine since then. With the exception of a couple of weeks ago, I have started putting like one scoop of regular coffee when I make a pot of coffee. Uh-huh. I, so I'll have like the tiniest bit of caffeine because I just I did really feel like just slow and foggy uh-huh. even months later. And But also it was like, is it long COVID? Is it <laughs> caffeine withdrawal still? Is yeah. it because I'm getting older? And so I just decided to see if it was the caffeine thing. And it was. <laughs> and I'm on a tiny baby bit about of caffeine now. Like a ti- I have a little bit every day, but uh-huh. just a, a minuscule amount.
1: So you are right on the edge of moving to Utah and getting a whole bunch of wives.
0: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. My cousin lives in Utah and <laughs> because he married into it, basically. Not that they're like practicing Mormons like that or anything, but he hates it so much. Yeah. He's just like. You know, and so just from talking to him, I was like, yeah, I don't think I would want to live in Utah. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Um, Nothing but love to people in Utah, though. If Dry Bar is watching this, I'd love to do one.
1: Yeah, I think you could pull it off as well as anybody. If Bob Zaney can do it, you can do it.
0: Yeah, well, and I love that Augie Smith just did one, and he even promoted it by saying, I'm probably the only comedian to have won, like, the Dirty Show at JFL and also do a Dry Bar. I yeah. think in, like, the same year and the same year. <laughs>
1: So starting at 35, you know, I did see a little bit into your history that you were in the music industry for a long time. And then
0: shifted to comedy. What was it that made you make that show? It was a couple of different factors together. I had played in bands since I was a kid, but then I also worked professionally as a tour manager for bigger, more successful bands for about seven years. And in the time that I was doing that as a tour manager, a comedy club up in here in Bloomington. And at first, it was a Funny Bone for like the first year, while Jared and Dana Thompson, the owners, like basically they did that to learn how do you run a right Mm. and so after the one year the franchise was up or whatever they didn't renew it and then they rebranded as the comedy attic and so it had opened in my town but i was also gone most of the time anyway on the road but i was Mm. aware that this thing had opened because i actually knew jared from before they opened the club and uh, the thing that kind of i was getting you know tired of being on you know because touring in the music world is a different animal you're gone for months at a time like what we in comedy think is a long tour like i just did 12 days out that's not, most fans don't even call that a tour. That's yeah. such a short, that's a short yeah. run, you know? <laughs> and so I wanted to be with my wife, even though we weren't married yet at that time. I wanted to come, basically I wanted to come home and propose to her. And so it was partially that. And then also the club opening up. And then the first show I went to at the Comedy attic was the finals of their amateur contest, of the their first year of their summer contest. And the three guys on stage were funny, but they weren't unattainably funny. Like I never watched Carl and I thought I could do that. Yeah. Or even like someone like Mark Curry. I seen Mark Curry perform live, Mr. Cooper, for those of you that remember that show. And there was never a thing that I thought I could do that. Seeing those three guys, it made a detainer. Sorry, I have to blow my nose. So that's the thing that made me then kind of really start obsessing about what I wanted to do. And I still spent like another six months trying to get the nerve up to do the open mic and to write that first five. And once I did it, man, I was like, you know, it's like anybody else. It is like a drug. You get hooked, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't really remember my first set because I basically blacked out while I was on stage. I did Uh it not from drinking either, just from nerves. Yeah. And so I remember immediately afterward being in the green room and basically shaking from adrenaline. And I was like, Oh, that's good. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So that was it. And then it was off to the races basically. And because I was starting so late, I, I took it pretty seriously. About Maybe six to nine months later, uh, open micing and doing regional open mics and stuff. I was, like, I really kind of want to do this. And then I was, <laughs> I quit a job that I was about to get fired from. I was working for a music publishing company and it was not publicist, music publicist. And it was terrible. I hated it. But when I was losing that job, my wife, Denise, was like, hey, we're pretty good on money right now. You seem really serious about this. Why don't you give it a shot? And like, that's what made me then be able to become a professional because then I could dedicate all my time to And I also had some lucky breaks early on, which helped, you know, but she had not said that I might not have ever recorded a special that was nearly ruined by a drunk lady (laughs) in Philadelphia.
1: No, you've got something good there. I really like that you just kept it up and didn't re-record it. Yeah, I am I like what came out of that. So the Limestone Comedy Festival is it's one of the most respected comedy festivals in the country now. And you and Dwight and I can't remember the other... Jared uh, Thompson. Jared, yeah. I always forget Jared. But it's one of the biggest comedy festivals, especially in the Midwest, but everybody knows about it. I wanted to talk about the logistics of starting a comedy festival from nothing. You know, I, how did you get that going and how did you make it happen? You know, let's talk about the first couple of years because now it's almost like, it's almost like, I don't know, words. It's almost like riding a bike, but getting that started, I know is difficult. What did
0: you do to get that going? Well, the genesis of the festival, I was starting to get into comedy festivals and some of them were really. Great. Well, that ran them are great, but they were run not the most professional, right? They we're like well intentioned people that didn't really know what they were doing, or a very well organized, well run festival that basically treated the unfamous comics like crap. Uh-huh. Like it would be like, I don't know why I drove 12 hours to come do this thing if I'm going to be treated like dirt, you know? And it was driving back from one of those, one of the second ones that I just basically formulated limestone. It's basically build the better mousetrap, essentially. And I was like, okay, how can we make a festival that the unfamous comics are treated with as much respect as the headliners. What would the structure be? So basically I just formulated the entire thing on the drive home. I met with Jared the next day, pause for blowing my nose. And I just laid it all out to him, like the structure, like the three days. These are the venues that we'll use. This is how it'll work. And, um, you know, Jared's big thing at the beginning was that he wanted to go. I was actually picturing it smaller. And so he was like, if we're going to do this. We need to just come out big. And so he's the one who had that vision for it. I thought we would slowly grow to be a bigger festival and spent a year. Jared and I spent a year before the first festival planning it, building it, working on it. The biggest challenge was getting sponsors. We couldn't get sponsors because nobody, it was not a proven thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that first year is always the hardest in that way and the money wise. But we just really believed it was well done. And we were also lucky because we were right before the boom of comedy festivals. When we did Limestone, like... The only, you know, there was was JFL, there was San Francisco and Seattle and Boston, right? The ones that had been around forever. But certainly in a small market like ours, like Bloomington's a small college town, we're considered a secondary market at best, Mm. you know, just population wise. We were right before the boom of like, we debuted the same year, I think, as Moon Tower. The only thing that was before us was Bridgetown in Portland. And it was this very, it was the hot indie one, right? It was like this upstart independent festival that people loved and and it was like this big deal right and a couple years in after I was doing limestone then there was this explosion and there's like festivals all over the place um so the biggest challenges really really were like the biggest thing was kind of like the venues got it like they trusted us most of the venues that we used were music venues who knew me from my music days like we personally knew all the owners you know and so There was that element of it and then because the comedy at that point had established itself as being like this really well-respected club in the midwest we kind of built off of their legacy essentially and as far as like signing big headliners to come to the festival the first year and then also selling tickets basically Mm -hmm. yeah so that's kind of how we did it and honestly structure-wise as far as how we do things we use a badge system because another big part of it is we didn't want to rip off people who were coming to the festival like i'll just I'll just throw their name out there because they're a corporate festival, but like Moon Tower, if you want to see all the things at Moon Tower, you're spending thousands of dollars like it's crazy expensive. They have badges, but then you also then have to buy tickets for the bigger shows. so we just designed as like if you buy a badge, if you buy a three day badge, you get to go to all any of the shows that you want to go to. you pick a no mm-hmm. matter if it's Pat Oswald doesn't mean if it's, it's the small headliner, it doesn't matter what it is. you pick what show you want to go to in that time spot and We've stuck with that. We've raised the price once in 10 years. And I think we raised them by five bucks or something like that, uh-huh. you know? And so that's another part of the design is treat all the comics equally with respect, show them a great time, and then also treat everybody who comes to the festival with respect too, like not just as a big cash grab.
1: Right. And the comedy attic itself is, you talk about it being a respected comedy club. It's like one of the most respected comedy clubs in the country that nobody really talks about you know Marin works out his stuff there Todd Glass I've had him on and he you know he raves about the comedy attic and I've only gotten to go there once both my kids went to IU and they got to go there more but I only went there once but you know it is a serious comedy venue I mean the it's it's a comedy venue for comedians and the audience has to get, get right or, it's, or they don't get to stay. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's the way to do it. Yeah. The, I, the comedy attic is definitely one of the clubs that has taught the audience on how to behave, not mm-hmm. only how to behave, but also what is comedy. Yeah. You know, if a club in a city only books acts that are, you know, been doing the same act for 15 years, you know, these headliners that come in and just, you know, been, haven't updated anything they're not pushing the envelope they're not getting you know interesting acts in there the audience who comes just thinks this is comedy Mm -hmm. what it is so you can lead the audience by the nose a little bit to like nope this is comedy maria Bamford is comedy right like this is the type of stuff that you, you buy into not that everybody who comes there is happy with all the shows right we still they still get randos who like oh we're gonna go to the comedy show on a friday night and they don't do any research they don't look anything up yeah you know, and Hannibal Burris is up there with a the DJ and ballet dancers for some reason. Yeah. You know, and they're like, what is happening? You know, they, Jared and Dana have done an amazing job with the club. There are other clubs, like comedy club on state has done the same thing, mm. train those audiences, like how to be amazing. Mm. So that's the thing It's like, it's always disappointing when a club doesn't do that. Mm. When they're just like, nope, this is just how it is. Yeah. You know, it's like, doesn't have to. You
1: know. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a, it's a stand-up live here in Huntsville, and they're very similar. You know, the seating arrangement's the same, and it's all, um, it's very organized on how they bring people in, how they seat them, and you're pretty much told how you're expected to act before before the show, and you're told in a way that you know that they're going to stand behind that, because every comedy club says don't talk, and, and no table talk, and stuff like that, but you know when somebody means it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I to, to also use the same example again. I don't think this guy still works there because I didn't see him the last couple of times I've been there. There used to be a security guy at the comedy club on State who was enormous. Uh-huh. And if someone was talking in the audience during a show, he would just go stand behind them. And he's such a large physical person that even if he was behind you, you just felt yeah, like you felt the room was closing in on you. Yeah. And so then they stop talking. They look up at him, and he does like the sh- thing. Yes. Yeah. And then he just stays there yeah, for like a good several couple of minutes until they get it. They're like, oh, I'm not doing that again. Uh-huh. Like, I'm not talking again. So, yeah, it is one of those things like a club can train the audience if they do it right, for sure. And, and that's something that Jared has excelled at, for sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, no doubt. So what's the best piece
0: of advice you've gotten since you started doing stand-up? What's the best piece of advice I've gotten? Someone once told me that the plateaus will kill you. And I think that there's some real wisdom in that because when you're first starting off and like, you know, it's exciting, it's super exciting. You're doing, going to open mics, you're figuring out this crap. The challenge of it is the excitement part of it. And you know, you have a bunch of bad shows when you're young and or young in comedy, but the plateaus of when you don't feel like you're really accomplishing anything anymore. Like when you're open mic and you're getting on slowly working your up. Now I'm getting a guest spot in an actual club. Now I'm hosting a club. Like it's that there is a track for most people, unless they're just horrible. Or horrible people you can you have a little bit of a baby roller coaster that you're riding on once you start working professionally for a while you kind of get just get stuck at a level for a long time unless something happens to your career like TikTok blows you up or something like that but you just like i mean i was a working road feature for years going to the same clubs every year making the same money every year and that can be really disheartening you know yeah and then not that it's not great it's great to do that and i still feature sometimes On the road, I headline sometimes, I feature sometimes. But when it just doesn't feel like you're making any progress in your career, that plateau can really, it can break a lot of people. Mm. Just think like, well, this is it. You know, I'm I'm done. This is as far as I'm going to go. And so that's why I think something that Stuart Huff said to me and inspired me. I was very lucky to meet Stuart Huff very early on when I started doing comedy. And he was talking about the only thing in comedy that you control is your material. That's it. Like, the business part of it is out of your hands. You can try to, you can try to, you know, run things as much as you want. You can be as independent as you want, not sign with the manager, you know, not sign with a label, put your own stuff out, all that kind of stuff. But there's still market forces. There's still things. There's still clubs that are gonna have certain rules or whatever. Even when you're performing the material on stage, it's not entirely in your control. You can have a wild audience, you can have an audience that just isn't feeling it. They're like real dead. The only thing you control is your material. That's the only thing you have total control over. So you should focus on that if you love writing jokes, perfecting them, and then the important part is then recording them and releasing them so you don't just do them forever. So you start the process over. I do firmly believe that every comedian should be working on their new hour. Now, whether that takes you eight years, 10 years, whatever, you know, 12 years, whatever, there should be this goal of constructing an hour, getting it down. And then again, the important part is putting it out, even if you record it yourself and just put it up on Spotify or whatever, you know, yourself, release it for free, however you want to do it. That is huge. And it's mm-hmm. also what has kept me in it because the process of writing new hours and getting them down and releasing them, it's the only sort of success yeah that, you know, is guaranteed in a way, Yeah, you know, as long as I'm still writing and I'm still getting good at this. And like we said at the top of this kind of getting closer to my truth, then, then I am successful yeah. in that way, you know?
1: Yeah, working towards something is better than just working.
0: Yeah, and there's definitely comics. You, again, you see people that have been doing the same act forever, and they've now have just turned comedy into a job, literally just a job. Yeah. And they don't like it, but it's like, it's you know, it pays their bills. They've got an act yeah. that works, you know, and so they go out and do the act. And, you know, I'm not going to fault them. That's how they're paying the bills. Good for them. But, right. like. For the rest of us, it should be—it's more of an artistic venture.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it would—if you're like me, doing that, you would just die inside, like you were working at a job that you hated.
0: Yeah, and yeah. making way less money than if you worked at a job. I mean, yeah. yeah. If you you just want to work a job to work a job, you can make way better money than and you know, unless you blow up in comedy. But just like Road Dog, I know you know the things people I'm thinking of are Road Dog Comics. Yeah. And it's like for as much as they don't like what they do on stage anymore and they don't like the whole idea of traveling and doing it it's like just quit go work at ibm or something yeah it'll make so much more money and be (laughs) just as miserable yeah yeah no doubt so we've come to the
1: point in the show that is new relatively new and one of my favorite parts is called is this anything and this is where you and i if you didn't bring anything that's totally cool we bring a joke a promise something that we're working on that we just want to see if we can get notes on and see if it's anything and since you're the guest you get to choose who goes first
0: Okay, I'm going to have you go first because I'm looking at my notes function on my phone where I keep my new jokes and my uh-huh. new ideas to see if there's something on here that I think okay. is, is, okay, cool. is ready enough even to share. yeah So, so you
1: for- mine is so brand new, it's actually coming from a Facebook post I did last night. Here we go. Just FYI, I talk a lot about social media. You know those if you know, you know posts with a hashtag, hashtag IYK? They're all over social media. And guess what? I don't know any of it. I don't understand what you are posting. Am I supposed to know? Is anyone supposed to know? If you put a picture of your foot and the Teenage Mutant Turtles with IYK, I'm just going to have to assume you've been kidnapped and this is some sort of a message. That's it.
0: Yeah. Well, if I can break that one down and see the Foot Clan was the name of the enemies of Teenage Mutant Turtles. I could just, I mean, I'm not saying don't do the bit. I'm just saying I think yeah. that's, I think I solved that meme for you. Okay. So I think there's definitely something there because particularly with the acronyms, there's like, you can have a lot of fun with acronyms. Yeah. We do it. Although it is built into the, if you know, you know, because you're like, what about all of us that don't (laughs) like, yeah, like, yeah, I guess we'll just unfriend you, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I I think there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. I And I just, you know, it was just a
1: couple lines when I wrote on Facebook and then I tried to build on it today and I just. I, what, one of the things that I try to make evident in my act is I don't know anything about pop culture and I, there's no, I don't have nostalgia. There's, there's no nostalgia with me and I don't go with anything pop culture wise. You know, like I will get into like Marvel movies probably when I'm 80. That's when it's going to come. That's the
0: time to do it. Yeah. yeah. That's when you should get into them. Yeah. And so
1: that's something I was hoping to add to that just to show, hey, what, whatever you're posting there, I don't understand.
0: Well, I do like that you have this larger structure, too, of like how ignorant you are to pop culture and then also to like Internet culture. This would be Internet culture. Yeah. right? But if you know, you know, things. Yeah, so I like that as a framework because it allows you to put several jokes, several standalone jokes underneath that umbrella. Right. Yeah. Of this concept. No, I think that, yeah, there's definitely something there. For cool. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So what you got for me? Well, this one is I think interesting because I I I'm curious as how you would pronounce this word that I think it sort of hinges on. But I've been trying to think about other things about my sobriety and particularly about I've always I've never wanted to glamorize my drinking, right? But there is some stuff back there that can be mined for material, right? Like and so one of the things is one of the reasons that I quit drinking is because I kept stealing things. And I don't know if you've ever come to at four o'clock in the morning in a Seven Eleven, holding a trumpet (laughs) that you do not own nor know how to play. Uh (laughs) But that, that is a wake up call. That's actually a wake up revelry. Uh Yeah. But it turned out it's actually, revelry is actually pronounced Reve, but I don't think anybody in America pronounces it that way. Yeah. (laughs) I've always pronounced it revelry. Yeah. Yeah. Like the military taps, you know, or whatever, but the opposite of taps, the morning bugle call. Yeah, but that's where I've been hung up on is like, oh, there's gonna be somebody's hey, actually, it's really, you know? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something there. Yeah, I moment. like that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and trumpet is the right word there.
0: Well, it's also a true story. <laughs> Part I'm leaving out is my roommate at the time, Sally. This is like, this is, I did, th- this was like maybe looking back, I'm like, oh, I should have realized I had a problem, you know, <laughs> thing. Um, but my roommate Sally was with me and the way it, the actual story is I'm all of a sudden I come to and out of this blackout out of this drinking blackout and I'm in a 7-Eleven and the guy behind the counter is like, I said, can you play that thing? And I'm like, what? And he's like, can you play that? And he starts pointing and then I look and realize I'm holding a trumpet. And then Sally goes, I can, and she takes it out of my hand and she starts playing it because she played in band or whatever. And then we stagger back to our house. I just lived in. (laughs) Yeah, so I think there's something there. The the, the thing with this is whether or not to build out until the whole next day thing of where I tried it. Because I went to a house party after closing down the bar, my roommate, and there were people jamming and I just walked out with an instrument. Yeah. There was like a jam party happening in the front. And so the next day I'm just... I can't remember which house it is. I just had a vague recollection of what neighborhood we were in. So I'm wandering around the streets looking like I just gotten run over by a truck because I was so hung over holding this trumpet when this like skinny 18 year old kid like comes busting out of this house and he runs up and he just gives me the biggest hug. And he's like, oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it was his trumpet. And I talked to him for a minute and it turns out that he is a music major at IU who is there on scholarship. Oh, wow. And that was so, like, I don't know if you've ever gotten so drunk, you've almost ruined someone's future, Yeah, but yeah, that's, yeah, uh, I would,
1: you know, I think that whole thing works. Maybe. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I tried to do the full story once. And when I did the second part about the kid, it, everybody got real sad. Like they did not laugh yeah. at that, like ruin a kid's future. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh, maybe I just need to chop it at the joke at the revelry part. Yeah. But yeah. There's something there. All right. Thank you for letting me know there's something Yeah,
1: you could... I mean, it's no more sad than the last joke on your special. I mean... Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the last joke on my special, that was also what's so infuriating is it builds up all this tension. It's like such a heavy story. And another... He, at that point unheard from drunk person in the room in the bathroom yells out during the setup yeah so i have to reset after i've already set the mood yep. for a second i have to deal with them and reset which is like so crazy to me yeah that story about my dad dying happened before i ever started doing comedy so i knew that story uh-huh. and the entire time i did comedy but it was like 10 years into me doing comedy before i figured out how i could do that on stage and make it funny right Without of just being like brutally set
1: yeah yeah you <laughs> know yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did, the, you did that well. And it. the thing about comedy sometimes is we're always looking for the last per minute, but if you can keep people engaged during the part where you're setting up, basically, you know, and, and you can't think of every joke as set up punch because, you know, it's more set up tag and then punch. And I saw it, I s you know,
0: it kept me interested. You oh, know, thank you. Yeah, and, and it, it took a long time to get it that way. I mean yeah. where people were and you know, and structurally the way that you do that with a longer setup did is there's still like these laugh points. There's still the thing about, you know, like um, you know, where I describe like, you know, him him teaching me how to throw a perfect spiral beer bottle at a cop's head. Night. <laughs> like, you know, like there's these little laugh moments that keep you in. Right you know without it just being sad and then hopefully funny at the end yeah like you know there's it's interesting like sometimes jokes like that that are longer there's one on blood mouth that is it starts off talking about vegan bakery then it goes into talking about dildos and then it goes into talking about vibrators uh-huh. that joke i could get the vegan bakery part to work i had the whole thing basically written and for months only the vegan bakery part would work as soon uh-huh. as i switched it into dildos didn't work anymore then for months i got the first two parts to work and then as soon as i started talking about vibrators it stopped working and i just i knew there was something there though and so i just stayed with it but that whole joke for the entire thing to work probably took eight months yeah and it was like small changes and how i performed the second and third part of it how like a little bit of change of wording here and there but it was infuriating yes like i know this is funny and i know the logic goes all the way through and it's just like it's like that's what keeps us coming back i guess though it's like that yeah no doubt
1: yeah. Never it's,
0: ending trial and error.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you really have to be okay with bombing in order to work those out. And I've, I think I finally gotten there because, you know, even because my eight years is probably like three years for somebody else because it's really just a hobby for me. So I haven't been as obsessed with it, but I haven't been really okay going up and just having people stare at me until really this year. And I'm totally fine with it now. And yeah. it's okay. I have to say these words out loud to see how they work.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. Well, you know, like another saying that gets kicked around is like, don't get addicted to killing. Because yeah. then you'll never try something that is going to take time to figure out. Right. Is more challenging. I also always think, too, like, this is a question we're going to talk about on Dwight and I's podcast coming up. But someone asked us, like, what do, you, is, do you think it's important to always crush and always to kill? To kill? I think... If someone describes another comic to me as like, they always kill, I'm probably not going to be that interested in their act. I might still respect jokes. I might be like, that joke's great. I like it. And I can respect them as a performer. But the people that I'm most interested in don't kill everywhere. Right. Like, like Maria Bamford doesn't kill everywhere. Chris Gethard doesn't kill everywhere. They're doing something that's more interesting. I yeah. Think. And that's kind of what I would like to do as well. And but it's hard though, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I want to get the last though. Oh, yeah!
1: it's funny. You mentioned uh, Mark Curry a while back and I've asked him a couple of times to do the show because I think he is one of the most underrated comedians ever. So I think he was like, I have to say Bill Cosby. He was like Bill Cosby turned up a couple notches and as real as a comedian can be, you know, a little bit of that, a little bit of Richard Pryor, but you know, I think he's kind of just sitting back and having fun now because yeah. he works so hard but yeah he's one of my faves from forever
0: i saw mark when i was in college so a long time ago there was a college there was a comedy club there's a funny bone in evansville indiana where i went to school uh-huh. and i didn't go very often because i couldn't afford tickets yeah you know and i was a poor college kid and i was always playing in my bands on weekends and stuff like that but i got tickets to go see him And he literally, when they announced his name, he came out walking through the audience and he's high-fiving people. And the last thing he did before he got on stage is he grabbed this woman's purse off her table and went on stage and he did an hour on things. He was in her purse and talking to her. He did an hour of improvised comedy, just riffing on things in her purse and talking to her. It was like crowd work, but with one specific person. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. He really, amazing. he's
1: definitely a genius. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for doing the show. This is great. The special is out on YouTube and really easy to find. Just put Matt Alano slash or dash Martin in. And it's one of the first things that come up and it's called Tango in Philly. And you do yeah. a little bit of tango in there. I sure did.
0: And it's really good. Where can folks find you if they want to see it? You? you know, my website has all the links to the things and it's just com. But every one of those words has a hyphen in between it. So it's M-A-T hyphen A-L-A-N-O okay. hyphen Martin hyphen comedy.com did i say all the things maybe i don't know yeah also before we wrap this up jason did put in the chat that the movie that you were trying to think of was in the mouth of madness.
1: yeah i saw that i didn't want to put it up so that we'd it would mess up the interview but we also did prince of darkness so that's actually we did prince of darkness and they brought me back for in the mouth of madness because that's actually a trilogy and i can't remember the one that ends that up but the in the mouth of madness was the last one of the trilogy and They're very loosely connected, but they are connected and some really weird movies, but really good. And I can't remember the dude's name in the Mouth of Madness, but he did it very well. Yeah, but yeah, I miss Jason. I got to get back to South Bend, see if I can see these guys.
0: Yeah, nothing but love for Jason and for anyone else listening. We also love you, but you weren't, you didn't jump into the chat, so we don't know that you're there.
1: That's right. Well, thanks so much for doing the show, and uh, your website will be in the show notes, so folks, always check out the show notes so you can find out where Matt is, and I believe his
0: performance schedule is up on the website. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Scott. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.